I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I'm going to be with you to the end, Lord Jesus, even if we die. But they could not accomplish in the strength of their own flesh what could only be accomplished in the power of the Spirit. We see this exemplified in Peter. Our brother Peter, who reminds us so much of ourselves, you know? Captain Foot and Mouth. <laughs> Jesus said, before that rooster crows twice, you will be, you'll deny me three times. And that third time, he started cussing up a storm. I don't even know him! And his eyes met with Jesus crossed that courtyard, and he wept bitterly. He broke inside. All the great aspirations of following Jesus, all all the things that he wanted to do, and he honestly, earnestly desired to do, he could not do. He fell apart. Fast forward to the book of Acts, 50 days later or so. We see that they are watching and praying, as Jesus had commanded them to do in the garden. Peter, James, and John say, hey, watch and pray so you don't fall into temptation. So that you aren't led by your flesh. If you remember in the garden what happened, they didn't pray, they slept three times, and then Peter goes ahead and pulls out a sword and cuts off Malchus's ear, and Jesus has to pop it back on. Say, so put away your sword. Peter is going to go take the kingdom of God by force, by the power of his might. That wasn't Jesus' plan. He came to suffer, to be a servant. Peter had to learn the hard way. So 50 days later, we see a different Peter at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out upon Peter and upon those other people. And that same Peter that denied Christ in front of the Sanhedrin and all the other religious leaders stood up boldly before them and proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ. And 2,000 people We're saved that day. What's the difference? Man, the Holy Spirit filling the life of Peter, empowering him to do what he could not do in his flesh. And how the Bible commands us, be filled with the Holy Spirit, continually be filled with the Holy Spirit. Because we're leaky, like I said, continually, every single day, needing to go to the Lord and say, okay, this body, I reckon it's dead. Crucified in Christ, I no longer live, but it is now Christ who lives in me. Live through me, Lord Jesus. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. And as you read in Galatians chapter 5, we see the evidence of the flesh in our lives. We see the evidence of the Holy Spirit. Oh, how we need to keep in check with the Holy Spirit. His love, or our love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, all these types of things, self-control, are they flowing out of your life? Or is it the temper tantrums, drunkenness, sexual sins? You know, what is your life marked by? Our, Jesus said that, that those who are, I think Paul said, that those who are Christ have crucified their passions. That we're no longer led by the flesh. We're supposed to be a people who are led by the Holy Spirit. That there's a relationship 
even when we come to the Bible, some of those lift up the Bible as the means of all ends, and his word is lifted up. Jesus says that. But when Jesus was talking about this, he says, you search the scriptures, but you don't know it points to me. There's a living relationship that happens with Jesus Christ. It's not turn right, turn left, jump up, bow down, pray five times a day, and then God will like you. It's a life of the Spirit, of Him speaking to your heart, and you hearing His voice, my sheep will know my voice, and you responding in kind, yes, Father, your will be done. And growing in that daily Yes, the Holy, the Holy Spirit uses the Scriptures, and the Scriptures are a guide in our life. We don't do what's contrary to the, the Word of God. It's given us where to go. It's profitable to correct us, to guide us, to rebuke us, and to build us up, right? But as we, like Peter, in our walk with Christ, we come to a place where we just stuck. We want to follow Jesus, but we can't. Remember, It's not by our might nor by power, but it's by His Spirit. And as brothers and sisters in the Lord, He's given us a helper. And all we need to do is surrender. And reckon what He says in here true, no matter how we feel about it. Forgive but it's impossible for me to forgive. Well, once you begin to obey the Lord, He will give you the strength to do it. Go out and reach and minister to that person, but I don't, but, 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 it's not about you anymore. Holy Spirit wants to use every single one of you to bring people to Jesus Christ. That's His plan. To some of you, greater degrees than others. But He wants to use you. And even the more glory to him, for those of you who don't do that naturally. Amen? So that when we see God working through you, we know it's not you. Amen? (laughs) Oh, glory to God, who saved a wretch like me. Said, okay, silly mouth, get up there, you know? And so Peter... You know, our brother Peter, we, we look at him and, and his life, and I just, it breaks us because we so identify with him. Jesus was brought illegally before these people. They weren't allowed to have a trial at night, this trial by the Jews, and they went ahead and they deemed him guilty of blasphemy, claiming to be God. Now, Jesus was silent before them, but they said, okay. I'm putting you under oath in this mock trial. I beseech you by the living God, are you the Son of God? And Jesus answered under oath, yes, it is as you say. We don't need to say anymore. And they tore their clothes and they said, okay. And so, very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and the teachers of the law and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. And so they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. The Sanhedrin was a political and religious body that acted as the Jewish court of the day. Um, it was, there was the greater Sanhedrin, which was basically 69 guys with two other leaders. Um, one was the, kind of like the president and the vice president. 
And so, and then there was the less of the Sanhedrin, and which was basically like 23, 24, 25 guys. But this is the whole Sanhedrin here was, was brought together. And obviously the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders, everybody who was anybody was in on this. And what plans did they make? He said they made their plans. You see, they had a problem. They decided he was guilty of blasphemy, but they were not able to execute Jesus. Now, we know that they went outside that from time to time, but Rome came down on them very hard. They stoned people. But you see, the Roman government, they weren't going to execute a man for you know, the blasphemy of the Jewish gods. Who cares? We've got a thousand gods. No big deal. And so they had to trump up charges that would get him executed in a Roman court. Therefore, He's the king of the Jews in opposition to Caesar. You say you're a king? Well, there's only one king, no king but King Caesar, was the chant. And so they were trying to work that angle. But the Jews could not execute this. They could not execute Jesus. They didn't have the power in around 6 BC, uh, 6 AD actually, um, Herod's replacement uh, King Herod, the guy, uh, Herod the Great, who built all the wonderful things. He died. His son took over, Archelaus. And basically, they didn't like him so much. They took him out, and eventually they put a Roman guy in charge of everything. And the first thing that Roman guy did in 6 AD was he took away their right to execute, pow- execute uh, people for capital punishment. And they obviously restic- restricted him in, in any other ways. And... What these guys did, the Sanhedrin back then, when they learned that they had, you know, that their power was taken away, they put ashes on their head and they wore sackcloth. And they went around the city, they cried, they said, "Woe to us! The scepter has departed from Judah, because the, the Messiah and the Messiah has not come yet." And they're referring to Genesis chapter forty-nine. Remember when Jacob was standing there and he was saying all these prophecies over his twelve sons, the twelve tribes, who would be the twelve tribes. We got to Judah in forty nine ten and it says, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he who, uh, until he to whom it belongs shall come, or Shiloh the Messiah. And they're sitting here thinking, Man, our ruling ability has been taken away from us. The Messiah has not come. Woe to us. And they broke. But little did they know, a little ways north of Nazareth, there was a little boy who would eventually pop into Jerusalem there and declare himself the Messiah. And they would crucify. So the Sanhedrin in our story, they had a problem there. They couldn't execute Jesus. And the Romans were not going to execute Jesus based upon their problems. If Jesus was proven to be in opposition to Caesar, dead meat. Instant death. And that death of the, Roman, the Romans inflicted upon people was crucifixion. That was their expertise. And Pilate was the ruler of the area at the time. They, re, they handed Jesus over to Pilate. Obviously, there's a lot more to the story in the other Gospels, but this is just the bottom line. Remember, Mark's just giving you the bottom line. Uh, you know, when we were, Pilate uh, was referred to as an incompetent person who was ignorant of Jewish customs. They didn't like him very much, and a lot of people feared him in the area, Josephus records. You know, when we were in San Diego, um, 
in our apartment, there was, we were by several um, high-powered lines that were up in the city, just really tall. And, and they had to replace these things. They couldn't, because of the hills and all that stuff, they had to get in there with a the helicopter and they'd, you know, they'd line the lines of, you know, they'd take this helicopter and they'd amazingly hook these lines in there and just do this all the way along. Well, they had to refuel, and they parked it right by our, our apartments in a field, and Christine and the kids walked out there, and R- Ruthie, she did not want to go visit that guy, you know, being pilot and all. He was... Uh, <laughs> Christine found that out later. Like, what, what is her problem? That's pilot, man. That guy's not right. I don't like pilots. <laughs> He's for, from Oregon, and it checked out. But uh, <laughs> Bible critics, they, uh, they talk, you know, up until 1961, there was no record of, of Pilate, but eventually, uh, you know, and they would just, you know, anytime you get a chance to really lay into the Bible, oh, it's invalid, it doesn't say this, and my professor and their professor said this, and so blah, blah, blah. And it's just a bunch of ignorance, but... Uh, Basically, in 1961, there was no, there was no up to that point, there was no record of Pilate, so therefore he didn't exist. Uh, of course, as they started excavating in Caesarea, they found a stone. Uh, Brad, would you uh, flip that little slide there? Yes, it looks like a stone. But it basically just says, Pilate, you know, in honor of Tiberium, you know, they, and with Tiberius, the emperor. And so, therefore... Uh, Right there, Pilate built a Colosseum in his honor, and there's a stone there. And I've walked right by and looked at it and go, well, what do you know? And, of course, it has to be translated. But there's that interesting marker. And, and since then, we found so much more. But, of course, after they discover these things, you don't hear a peep out of them. They never correct it. It's always on page 12, you know, right next to the funnies or something. But the Bible, it just blows me away. And so Pilate is a real his, uh, piece of history, you know. And the plan was that Jesus would have that conspiracy against, conspiracy against uh, Rome. He was, a con, you know, he was a conspirator against Rome. In verse 2, Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. And so again, Pilate asked him, Aren't you going to answer? See how many things they've accused you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. You know, Pilate probably had a lot of people in his time grovel for their lives before him. And here's this composed man. He could have said something, but he didn't. Now it was the custom of the festival to release a prisoner whom, people requ- who, uh, whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. There was obviously an uprising against Rome. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. Knowing it was out of self-interest that the, ch- the chief priests had handed him over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate uh, release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? He's, he has no, committed no crime. Here he is under oath in a trial and Pilate's saying, this guy's innocent. 
But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. You know, as I was studying this passage, I, I heard a new angle on this that, that you know, might be food for thought. You know, the, the crowd that was right before Pilate that, that day very well could have been an entirely different crowd from the one that ushered in Jesus a week ago. Oh, you know, this is all speculation, so just have fun for a second. It might have been possible that the crowd uh, knew the customs of the Romans to release that prisoner at the feast. You know, it might have been that Barabbas was a local type of hero. There was a hatred of Rome among the Jews. They absolutely hated Rome. And anyone who was doing anything to get these turkeys out of here, you've got to have that Middle Eastern mindset, okay? Don't like occupation. Was a hero in their eyes. And so it might have been possible that they didn't know much about Jesus. They might have known about him. But they were just going, we want this guy out. Go ahead and kill Jesus. You know, we want our, we want our man back. It could have been possible. Nevertheless, we do know that the crowd chose a lawless man over a lawful man. They, cho- they chose a murderer over an innocent man. They chose a guilty man instead of the king of glory. They were wrong in their decision. Now, I find it amazing. Jesus probably had a way with crowds. He could have stood up and stirred the crowd and worked it to where he would be free, but he did not. He remained silent. He remained silent, I believe, because he was guilty on our behalf. We have nothing to say before a holy God. We're all, we've all been found guilty. And so Jesus, in our place, kept his mouth silent for us. That he would take the full brunt, the full punishment, the full wrath that God would have poured out upon sin. And wanting to satisfy the crowds, Pilate released Barabbas to them. Barabbas means son of the father. Very interesting. Bar Abba. And he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Mark obviously quickly goes over that he was flogged. Although Mark makes a quick reference to being flogged, it's important to notice its significance. It wasn't a minor event. It was such a horrible punishment that... um, there was a Roman law that no Roman citizen could be flogged unless they went through a trial. It was horrific. That's why Paul says, hey, why are you beating me? I'm a Roman citizen. Remember that? Interestingly, Paul was whipped 39 times, five times. A cat of nine tails was used and a leather whip with nine strips at the end. Coming off of it on those leather strips, there was embedded glass and lead. And so when the, what would happen is the soldier would start out and whip you in the back, and it would stick, and they'd pull it. And it just ripped your back open. And there was a scribe standing next to you, and he'd be waiting for your confession. Now, 
I don't know about you, but I would start confessing everything I did and even what I didn't do. You know, I didn't do. Jesus had nothing to confess. He was innocent. And so they laid in a little harder and a little harder and a little harder trying to get a confession out of him. And it tore him to shreds. Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Jesus endured 39 lashes, and they stopped at 39, because 40 was the limit, just in case they miscounted. And the soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is, um, uh, the praetorium, and they called together the whole company of soldiers, basically to the barracks. And after Jesus was totally ripped to shreds, you know, he was brought to the barracks where the soldiers took shots at him. You, You can imagine a bunch of Roman soldiers, how... Horrible that must have been. And they put a purple robe on him. Purple, representing royalty. They twisted a crown of thorns and they set it on him and began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and they spit on him. And falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put on his own clothes. You know, put on his clothes on him. Then... They led him out to be crucified again. The royalty, the purple signifying the royalty, the crown of thorns twisted in place upon his head. Where do do thorns come from in Scripture? If you remember in Genesis, when Adam sinned against God, part of the consequence of sin is that his work, he would toil, he had to toil in his work. It wasn't like the Garden of Eden anymore. Thorns and thistles. You have to deal with all the day of your life and by the sweat of your brow, you're going to make ends meet pretty much. Those thorns and thistles, part of the curse. Jesus bore the curse for us, the curse that was for us, he put upon himself. It's amazing how God interacted through the circumstance, even though it was at the hands of the Romans, God was in it the whole time. The The symbolism Deeply meaningful. And a certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the follower of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on the way from the country. And they forced him to carry the cross. Jesus was too weak to carry the cross any further. And so the Romans, they had a soldier, you know, and the soldier could ask anybody to take a load a mile. And by Roman law, you had to do it. He would place his sword on your shoulder, say, pick it up and go. Obviously, they didn't pick up a, pick a Jew or a Roman. They picked someone from Africa that was coming through, probably for political ramifications. They put it on Simon from Cyrene, from Libya. He put it on his shoulder and said, 
Pick up the cross. This is what Jesus is referring to when he says, go two miles when they ask you to go one. In Matthew chapter 5 through 7, anybody? They got Simon of Cyrene. You know, it's possible that this, you know, this... His sons, Alexander and Rufus, might have been mentioned in Romans chapter 16, verse 13, for any of you who want to go check that out. So, but I came across uh, something from Charles Spurgeon. I just want to read for a second about Simon. His name was Simon. And where was that other Simon? What a silent but strong rebuke this would be to him. Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, where wast thou? Another Simon has taken thy place. Sometimes the Lord's servants are backward where they are expected to be forward. And he finds other servitors for the time. If this has ever happened to us, it ought to be gentle rebuke to us as long as we live. Brothers and sisters, keep your places and let not another Simon occupy your room. Just let that speak to your heart, you know. Does the Lord have to use someone else when he wants to use you. And they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. The traditional place by Christians, um, you know, believed to be the crucifixion of Christ is in Jerusalem. And uh, I don't think that's, personally, I don't think that's where he is crucified. Uh, There's a hillside that used to be a quarry that looks like a skull. And if you could flip that over. No, that's not it. Yeah. If you look there on the bottom right type type of thing, you can flip it one more and it's a close up. Uh, the place of the skull, if you right below that today is a Palestinian bus stop. You know, on a hill far away. No, not really. Um it was on the on the main road that they would crucify people. And that's why we read here in a second that as they went by, they mocked him. Romans, they, they didn't want to glorify people. They wanted people to be humiliated. So they put them along public, very public places. And they'd be hung naked or crucified and out there for everybody to see. And they'd hurl incense as they go by on them. It's it just a horrible situation. But they came to a place called Golgotha or Calvary, the place of the skull. And then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him, dividing up his clothes, and they cast lots to see what each would get. A reference to Psalm 22, which we'll read in a moment a little bit of. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charges against him read the king of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you're going to destroy the temple and build it up in three days, are you? Come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. And we learn later that one of them came around after a while. 
But I am a worm and not a man. Psalm 22 reads, starting in verse 6, Scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their head. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like, like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It is melted within me. My mouth is dried like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among, among them and cast lots for, for my garments. But you, O oh Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lion. Save me from the horns of wild oxen. But it was silent. And at noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out, cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lima sakbaktani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's no natural explanation for the darkness. It just came across the land. That Sabbath was a full moon. The sun was on the other side of the earth. Everything was normal. There was no eclipse. The heavens just closed upon the earth because sin was on that cross. Jesus became sin for us. And sin separates man from God. And Jesus was experiencing separation from the Father something he'd never experienced before, and something we will never fully comprehend the, way, the, the, the depth of what his experience was. Sin separates us from God, and Christ became sin for us on the cross and was forsaken so that we don't have to experience that. When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling for Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with wine vinegar and put it on the staff and offered to Jesus to drink. Leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes and takes him down, he said. Eloi, Eloi, thinking of calling out to Elijah. But he wasn't. He was calling out to his father. As the full punishment of sin for us was being thrown upon him, thrust upon him. And with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. And the centurion of the temple, I'm sorry, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The curtain of the temple was separated, was that which was separated God's holy presence from sinful man. It was anywhere from 4 to 18 inches thick, very thick. 60 feet high at the time. 
And as we know, a high priest could only go behind that veil into the Holy of Holies once a year, but not without blood. He would sprinkle it on the people, sprinkle it on the mercy seat for the sins of the people and for his own sins. Jesus entered into the presence of God behind that veil, not with the blood of bulls and goats, but by his own blood. And the veil that separated God from man was torn, and that veil was the body of Christ. And now we have access to God through Jesus alone. Therefore, brothers and sisters, Hebrews chapter ten nineteen, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with sincere heart and with the full assurance of faith uh, that faith brings. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with the pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promises is faithful. The blood of Christ cleanses us from a guilty conscience. The blood of Christ allows us to be in God's presence. And he wasn't a priest who had to go in once a year and offered atonement, toning, covering up. But with his own blood, eternally, he came in and cleansed it once and for all, no more. And that veil was torn. And now we have access to, to the holy of holies, to the God of the universe, through the blood of Jesus Christ only. Not by my works, but by his work on the cross. Jesus says many will come in in different ways. Liars and thieves, they try to climb over the gates in different ways, but it's only through faith in Jesus Christ that he died on the cross, he took my place. That punishment should have been me. But I believe he took it for me. Therefore, I go free. We're free. That's powerful. We have peace through God, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, what manner of love is this? That we could be called the sons and daughters of the living God. Not only we get off the hook for all the horrible stuff we've done and will do, But now, we are his sons and daughters. And I have said it before, how about running into that throne room? Hey, Dad, come boldly to the throne of grace. How many of you need help in time of need? How many of you would like to know someone in charge of something to get something done? You know someone. And now, you're his little children. Some of you still squirrely. Run to your father. Jump up on his lap. Enjoy him. He's created you for that purpose. Delight in him. Find out what makes his heart happy and live for it. You will have no other joy. There's there's no joy that will last apart from that. Living for your Father. Learning how He acts and what He does and mimicking Him. And how do we do that? Jesus said, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You want to know what the heart of the Father is like? You don't want to know what the heart of God is? We look to Jesus Christ. 
how he loved, how he gave, how he didn't let all his rights. Did he have rights? He told Peter, Peter, put away your sword. I could call 12 legions of angels down here. One angel took out 180,000 Syrians in the Old Testament. 12 legions of angels at my disposal. But he didn't. And how we are so caught up in me and how I feel and how I'm, you know. Let us live for him. Let's live in a manner that would bring him glory. How do we live that life? Through the power of the Holy Spirit. God living in and through us. Reckoning ourselves dead, crucified with Christ. And now he lives through us. That's the power of the cross. That's where the joy comes in. Miserable Christians out there. There's tons of them. I'm one of them sometimes, you know? Seriously, because we're trying to do it in our own flesh. Go have a weeping session. Get over it and reckon yourself dead and start living by faith. Amen? Those who are eternally separated from God will experience eternity in a place called hell that Jesus spoke of, not Matt. Jesus spoke of it. And they're all around us, and you are the light of the world, Jesus said. Get on mission. Get on task. No excuses. You've been bought with the price. You're no longer your own. Share, because he said to share. We don't want to have an everlasting place of fire for those people. We don't want to have a place of everlasting torment where the worm never dies, where the fire never is quenched. Where Jesus talks about that story in Luke 16 of Lazarus, he went down there. He was a beggar. Or it was a rich man in Lazarus. Lazarus was a beggar and he died. And he went into Abraham's bosom, the place of paradise, waiting for Christ. But across this giant chasm, Jesus is talking about, there was the rich man who walked by him every day and had everything he wanted. And when he died, he went to Gehenna, to hell. He was in there and he was burning in agony, he cried out to Lazarus, Lazarus, can you please give me a drink of water? He said, I would if I could, but I can't. He was crying out to Abraham. He says, well, well please, just send, send Lazarus back. Send someone back up to go tell him. Surely they'll, they'll, they'll know someone who rose from the dead. They'll believe him. He says, got, they have Moses and the prophets. If they don't know them, they're not going to listen to someone who rose from the dead. The fire never stops. It's a reality. And right now, it's happening. Time's ticking. The urgency should be within us. Jesus is coming back and he's taking account and he starts with the house of the Lord. Some women were watching from a distance and among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus, and the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. And in Galilee, these women had followed him and carried for his knees, and many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were there also. Notice, at the end of Christ's life, who, were the, who was there? 
the women. Men, where are we? Most of the missionaries on the field, women. Most people engaging in ministry. Most people singing at church, women. Women, you're doing great. God bless you. Guys, stand up and start living for Jesus. You're it. You're the hope. You know, if we win the men, we win the family. Stand up for Jesus. Live bold. Yes, you can go, still go out and, and shoot things, okay? <laughs> that's, that's fine. We'll get there. Bible bite, Thursday night, right? Where we get to go eat meat and read about the Lord. Verse 42, in closing here. It was preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. And so as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked Jesus for the body. We wonder where we get all these inside accounts of knowing what the the Sanhedrin was saying and all these things. I believe many of those people were pierced and they were born again. We see that in Acts later on where they have some issues there but oh don't leave it don't the Lord can do anything he went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead summoning the centurion the centurion was standing guard over him who looked at him and said surely this is the son of God when he learned from the centurion that it was so he gave the body to Joseph and so Joseph brought some linen cloth took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb, cut out with rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and the Mary mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. Dead in the ground. Just give it three days. Right? Unless a kernel wheat falls into the ground, how is it to spring up? so obviously the disciples and everybody was just tripping out what happened we'll see next week brothers and sisters the Lord loves you and he also chastens those he loves (laughs) I'm under that heavily you know when I went into ministry the, the Lord gave me a verse and said don't be like a donkey and he's a bit and a bridle. So, I'm enjoying my bit and my bridle. Stubborn. But, you know, through this chastisement, I've, I've learned that the Lord has directed me and taken off a lot of these rough edges and has really used it as a blessing to focus me back on him. I don't know if you need to be suffering some physical pain or not but it kind of brings a lot of the fluff down to a focus. These times are short. Who are the people you are going to share the Lord with this week? I challenge you. Step out. Remember the, the guy who had the issue with his hand? Jesus told him to do something impossible. Stretch your hand forward. And as he stretched his hand forward, which was an impossibility... God gave him the strength to do it. Go out this week and stretch your hand forward and let God work through you. Mumble the gospel. 
Let the whole... It's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. Amen? Let's stand.